Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you've had a great day. Even though we couldn't be together, I hope it's been a good uh, Easter for you. And I hope that uh, as you go throughout the rest of this evening and the rest of your week and really the rest of your life, that you will celebrate resurrection. As we talked about this morning, this is not something that we only celebrate one time a year. This is something that we don't just celebrate once every week on the Lord's Day, but something that we celebrate every day because the resurrection is so key to who we are as a people and what we have to look forward to. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, we will walk out of the tomb as well. And I want to start this evening with a question. And the question is this, what are you going to do tomorrow? Maybe go to work, maybe uh, run some errands, maybe come home and cook some supper. What are you going to do tomorrow? How about this? Live differently. Do you have that on your agenda? Do you have that written on your calendar and circled in red ink? Hopefully you do. Hopefully you will live differently because of the resurrection. Hopefully it makes a huge difference, a monumental difference in your life. I want us to look in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do these words from Paul serve as an accurate description of your life? Do these describe the kind of life that you will live tomorrow? Here's a sad reality that I find discouraging. Ask a Christian why they go to church on Sunday, and a lot of times you'll hear the response as, well, because you have to, because you're not to forsake the assembly. Ask a Christian why they sing at church, and they may launch into some defense of a cappella singing versus using instruments in worship. Ask a Christian why they take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And they may launch into some argument about how you should take it every Sunday because the Lord has told us to and because that's the biblical command and all of that. And all that is true, but in a sense, we have missed the boat. We've missed the mark to some degree. You can come to church and you can go through the ritual and routine. You can sing and go through that ritual and routine. You can take the Lord's Supper and you can go through it as a ritual or a routine. But I hope that's not all you do. I certainly hope that that's not where your heart is. Because we don't just do these things because we're commanded to. We do these things because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, because we are so overwhelmed with love and appreciation for what the good Lord has done for us. We are so excited about resurrection. We are so excited about the hope that is on the horizon. And we know that we live as saved people today, that we have been rescued. Therefore, we can't help but sing. We want to come and worship every time the doors are open because we want to show our gratitude and appreciation to God. We want to edify and encourage one another because we are so so immersed in this, this righteousness and this, this, this beauty of grace that has been shown to us. It's all we are. It says everything about us. Unfortunately, too many times Christians are known for what they're against rather than what they're for. 
I want to be known for what I'm for rather than what I'm against. Because I think if people know what I'm for, they're going to automatically know what I'm against. I don't have to be banging that over their head all the time. I worship, I sing, I give, I take of the Lord's Supper, I pray, not just because I'm told to. I do it because my Heavenly Father has been so gracious to me and has blessed me in so many ways. And I want to show my gratitude to Him. You think about it. You don't just want your kids to do what you tell them to do just because you told them to. I mean, yes, in a sense you do. But doesn't it mean more when they do those things without being told because they love you and they want to to show their appreciation for you because they want to please you? You don't come to church and do things associated with church just because you're supposed to. I mean, yes, there are commands to follow, and I'm not in any way trying to diminish the authority of Scripture or God's authority in any way, but God never meant for us to follow His commands in a rote and mechanical manner. He never intended for us to, to, as the church, just do things ritualistically. These things that we do are a product of the relationship, not the other way around. We do these things because of the relationship. We don't do things rote or mechanically because we just simply want to check them off the list because we want God to be pleased with us and so that we can earn some sort of spot in heaven next to him. We do these things because we love him, because we want to show our gratitude to him. There's another statement that I hear quite often from Christians, and it's this. We need to restore first century Christianity. And and I agree. If what you're talking about is getting back to the reason for what we do, All too often when we talk about going back and being the first century church and restoring first century Christianity, oftentimes we're talking about what we do inside the walls of a building and we're talking about getting the acts of worship right. And and, and no doubt, there is apostolic example for what we do in worship when it comes to those acts of worship. But if that's all it's about, we've missed the boat and we've missed the mark. This is not just about doing, this is about being If all you're talking about is doing the five acts of worship, then we're missing something because we'll never restore first century Christianity unless and until we become a movement again. You see, I love my family. Keely, Zoe, and Zane, and Libby, they mean the world to me, and I don't know where I would be without them. But we're not just a family when we're at my house. We're always family. My oldest daughter lives uh, nine hours away in Memphis, Tennessee. We're still family. We're family wherever we go. We're family when Libby and I are here and Keeley's in Memphis and my other two are at Harding. We're still family because we share the same DNA. We have the same blood coursing through our veins. And the same is true when it comes to the church. We are God's family linked together by the blood of Christ. And everywhere we go, people should know us as such. It should be obvious by the life that we live and the joy that we display and the love that we share. People should see as we constantly go around showing who we are and talking to others about Jesus. And People should be able to tell that we are a part of a family that is different than the world around us. After all, they'll know we are Christians by our love, right? At least they should anyway. Not just by what we're against, not just by the things that we do when we come together on Sunday. Hopefully they will see us as living sacrifices. It was on Friday when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was on Friday when he was betrayed by Judas. It was Friday when Jewish officials conspired to arrest him 
in the night. It was Friday when he was abandoned by his disciples. It was Friday when Peter denied him three times. It was Friday when he was mocked and flogged and and stripped of his clothing and crucified. It was Friday when he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, if that were the end of the story, it would be a sad and tragic story indeed. The one who was supposed to be the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came to bring abundant life, the one who claimed to be the Son of God, who hung there in shame on a cross. What a letdown if it ended in the tomb. But it didn't. Friday wasn't the end. It was only the beginning. Friday gave way to Saturday, and Saturday gave way to Sunday, and it was on Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. It was on Sunday that Jesus appeared to his disciples. It was on Sunday that great joy was experienced. It was Sunday that hope was restored, and victory was achieved, and triumph was celebrated. That was Sunday, but here's the question I have for you. What about Monday? What do you think Monday was like for Jesus' apostles? What do you think it was like for them? Do you think they couldn't even sleep on Sunday night because of all the excitement do you, think that, do you think that when Monday rolled around, that they were different? Well, I think the scriptures speak to that. We know that, that they did certain things that were totally against their character before Jesus had died and come back to life. They were pursuing the kingdom with reckless abandon. They sold their possessions. They preached Jesus in the marketplace. They willingly laid down their lives for Christ. Now, granted, they didn't do all of that on the Monday directly after the Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. But the events of Friday and Sunday sparked a spiritual revolution. What happened on Friday and Sunday changed the lives of the disciples forever. And it should change our lives as well. My friends, we live in Monday. Friday and Sunday have come and gone And will we allow the events of Friday and Sunday to shape our Monday? Will we serve the Lord with reckless abandon? Will we lay down our lives for Christ if need be? I ask you to ponder a very serious question this evening. And the question is this, are you different on Monday? How does Sunday affect your Monday? We gather each week on Sunday, the Lord's Day, to worship our Heavenly Father, to sing songs of praise, to to take a portion of His Word and to ingest it and hopefully apply it to our lives. And we, of course, partake of communion together. We remember the sacrifice that He made on our behalf. We come together as we worship as the church, a church that is founded on the blood of Jesus Christ, a church that exists because Christ died for it, and a church that lives in victory because Christ triumphed over sin and death. Do you live victoriously? Are you changed by these things that happen on Sunday? This day will come and go, just like it did for the disciples. How are you living on Monday? And will you live a resurrected life. Let me ask it a different way. Are you a roller or a squeezer? When it comes to toothpaste, what do you do? Do you roll it or do you squeeze it? Now, I personally am a roller. That may disappoint all, or excuse me, I'm a squeezer, not a roller. That may disappoint all the rollers. I don't believe in rolling it from the bottom up. I believe in squeezing it and squeezing it till you get every little bit of toothpaste out of the tube. You know, actually, there are times when Uh, I do some 
some premarital counseling and we ask the question, are you a squeezer or a roller? And they look at me kind of funny because, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting the different personalities from somebody that squeezes and somebody rolls the toothpaste too. Anyway, that's a story for another time. When it comes to toothpaste, I'm a squeezer. Thankfully, I'm married to a squeezer as well. When it comes to squeezing toothpaste out of a tube, you're going to change the shape of that tube, aren't you? The toothpaste is going to come out and the shape of that tube is going to be changed and it's going to be changed from the outside. It's going to be changed by you squeezing and pressing on it. On the other hand, you take a balloon, for instance. A balloon is affected from the inside out. Its shape is changed from the inside out. When you blow air into it, it changes shape. And as long as it's holding air, it's going to continue to remain in that shape. Unlike the tube of toothpaste, a balloon takes its shape from the, from the outside in. As long as there is air in the balloon, it will hold its shape. Although Paul doesn't come right out and say it, he is speaking of the difference between being squeezed and being transformed. Leading up to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, Paul describes the amazing grace and profound mercy of God in relation to our broken, sinful selves. And he spoke of how God can restore and renew us. Now in chapter 12, he opens with the word, therefore. Therefore, because of the amazing grace and profound mercy that God has bestowed upon us, this is how we should live. We must live a changed existence, not a conformed existence. We must be transformed by God, not molded by the world around us. Because of what Christ did for us, because of the events of Friday and Sunday, we must live differently on Monday. But how? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? But how? How do we avoid being squeezed by the world and live transformed? Many of us find it easy to find renewal when we're together on Sunday. But what about the rest of the week? It is a daily fight to be holy. Transformation is a continuous process. Renewal is something that is ongoing. And please understand, God is not calling you to be a better you. I hear people give the advice sometimes that you just need to be the best version of yourself And that's not what the Bible speaks to. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. This is not about making minor adjustments to your character or tweaking yourself. This is a wholesale and sweeping change. This is about being something brand new. It's also important to note that transformation is not like a cherry tree turning into an orange tree. No, it's more like a cherry tree becoming the strongest most fruit-producing cherry tree that it can be. You go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and there's a couple of inferences here that we need to set straight as we talk about what it means to live a resurrected life. First, there's Paul's warning about not conforming to the world, and this doesn't just apply to external things. You know, through the years, different generations have determined what Paul meant Not conforming to this world meant for some not listening to rock and roll music, not dancing, not smoking, not wearing red lipstick. Men couldn't have long hair, and the list goes on and on. Although they were subjective things on the list, there was a list. And sometimes this list was so long that Christians became defined by what they didn't like and what they couldn't do. But Paul was not referencing such things in Romans 12. Dancing, smoking, playing poker, that wasn't the context. Secondly, some have taken Paul's words to mean that in order to be truly spiritual, one must withdraw from the world and live in isolation. 
In other words, go live in, in a desert somewhere, go live in a cave, uh, go live in a monastery. Just go so you won't be tempted by the bright lights of the big city. But whatever not being conformed to the world means, it does not mean to go run and hide. So two key words in this passage are world and conform. Now, world does not refer to the ball of earth that we live on. If that's what Paul meant, then he would be contradictory because God intended for us to enjoy the glory of his creation. This world was not meant for us to have to endure until Jesus returns and we go on to our reward. Paul's not encouraging Christians to just hole up and hunker down until Jesus comes back. This world is not my home is a song that we sing quite often. You know how it goes. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And that's true to some degree. But God saw what he created as good. And he placed man in the garden to work and to keep that garden, to enjoy paradise. And of course, Adam and Eve messed all that up. But even though sin has affected this creation, that doesn't mean that this world has no value to us or that it offers no pleasure. God created it as good. And he created us to enjoy the things of this world, you know, like the, the mountains and, and the oceans and, and to see and to behold the beauty of a West Texas sunset. This world is not my home is a great song, but there's another th song that's just as appropriate. This is my father's world. The birds, their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white declare their maker's praise. I mean, that song is just as appropriate. So what is Paul speaking of when he tells us not to be conformed to this world? Well, there's a couple of different words that are used for world in the New Testament. One is cosmos. It is the word used by John in 1 John chapter 2 when he exhorts Christians not to love the world. You, you may hear a broadcaster some, sometimes talk about news from the sports world. Obviously, he's not talking about a planet that only plays sports. Or sometimes we hear about news from the business world. Obviously, that's not talking about a world where only people buy and sell and invest. When John talks about the cosmos world, he's talking about an organized system headed by Satan that deliberately leaves God out. Now, Paul doesn't use cosmos. He uses the word aeon, which is typically translated as age. And so what he's literally saying is, do not be conformed to this age. Why? Because this age is coming to an end. We live in this present age, but this present age will not last forever. There's something better on the horizon. As Peter says, there's new heavens and new earth. So we don't put all of our eggs in this basket. Yes, we must live in the present age, but we mustn't let this present age consume us. So that's one of the key words. Another key word is conform. And this word translates a complex Greek word from which we get our English word scheme. Now scheme has a rather negative connotation it's a, an idea of a trap. It's kind of like those email scams that tell you to, to, that a person will send you $10,000 if you give them your account information or, or maybe these car warranty calls that you get. You ever get those that your car warranty is, is, is about to run out? This word conform means to fashion. In other words, we are not to follow the fashions of the world. We're not to fashion ourselves after the schemes of this age. Why? Well, because this present world is dying. So the essence of worldliness is living as if this age is going to last forever. It's the, the Vegas rule. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Live as if there's no tomorrow. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Remove all the restraints and all the boundaries and just do as you please. So do you see where Paul is going with all of this as he talks about a living sacrifice? 
Paul's admonition is very simple. It's be different. If you think that this world is going to last forever, then by all means, just live it up while you can. Live by the world's rules. But if this life is going somewhere, and it is, then you'd better live in light of tomorrow. Now, that's not going to be easy. You may feel squeezed by your friends. You may feel pressured to conform in your job, at school, even at home perhaps. But at least you won't end up with a hangover from being drunk by the ways of the world. Now, let's look at two more key words. When it comes to living a resurrected life, there's two more words, two more concepts really. And we need to buy into these two words every single day. And the first one is re-surrender. To live a resurrected life is a daily proposition. It's not a decision that you make one time and you think, well, I'm good. No, re-surrender is something that happens daily. Surrendering, I should say, is something that happens daily. You know, I surrendered my life to Christ back in 1997. I was immersed for the remission of my sins back in 1997. And I wish I could tell you, from that point forward, I was all in. But I wasn't. Unfortunately, I had given part of my life to Christ but not all of it. And now I've come to realize that this is a daily proposition. This is something that I have to embark on every single day. It's not that I can do this one time and think that I'm good. It's not that I can surrender and wave the white flag, but still go ahead and do my own thing. No, this is an all or nothing proposition. We understand surrendering when it comes to warring nations, right? And sometimes You know, a nation realizes that they have no other recourse, and so they wave the white flag. But you can't wave the white flag while aiming your gun and still shooting it at the enemy. You surrender. You give up all your rights and privileges, and the other nation overtakes you, and they declare victory. Unfortunately, too many Christians want to to make a treaty with God. And a treaty allows you to get some of your conditions met while you still meet some of the conditions of the other party. And that's not how this works either. We don't make treaties with God. It's a full-on surrender each and every day. This type of surrender is daily because Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Each day that we are blessed to wake up, we must resolve to live that day for Christ in full surrender. The second key concept is There's re-surrender, but also resistance. This is a key to living from Monday through Saturday. Far too many Christians become spiritually sick because they have a weak immune system. Their defenses are down because they have quarantined. They, they, They have, I should say, bathed themselves in worldly germs and not quarantined themselves from the world around them. Church is a sterile environment for them. That's the quarantine station. It's sanitized for their protection. But once they step back into the real world on Monday, they immerse themselves in the bacteria. And for some, it's explicit images on a computer. For others, it's hanging out with friends that bring out the worst in them. Still, others allow the darkness of the world to rule them. And then there are some who feel as though an indulgence in the world during the week can be separated, categorized, and, and, and even canceled out by what they do on Sunday. Paul says, do not conform to this world. Do not. We are not to conform to this world in any way, shape, or form. We must build up our resistance. We must strengthen our immune system so that we will be as spiritually healthy as possible. I want to ask you to do something. I want you to try something for me. When you get up tomorrow morning, why don't you start your day with the breakfast of champions? And I'm not talking about Wheaties. I'm talking about the best breakfast 
I'm talking about beginning your day in the healthiest way possible by opening up, opening up God's Word. See how much better your day goes when you begin by investigating what God has to say in His Word. The psalmist writes, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And try this as well. Develop a spiritual training program that includes lifting up your heart to God in prayer. I mean, prayer is spiritual cardio. Give your heart a workout. Make regular appointments with God. Close the gap between you and Him and exercise the privilege of prayer. Prayer is spiritual breathing. It keeps you alive spiritually. James said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Also, build up your muscles through service. Serve God, not yourself. Roll up your sleeves like Jesus. Take up a towel and serve. Serving has a profound way of focusing us because it takes the focus off of ourselves and places it squarely on the other person. When we serve God through serving others, we deliver a powerful message to the devil. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Start implementing these simple exercises in your daily life and see how much better, how much stronger you'll become. Maybe you remember uh, Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper was a, a shock rocker who became a Christian. And here's a quote from Alice Cooper. He said, drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's rebellion. And you know he's right. Being a Christian means being a rebel with a cause. It means streaming up, uh, swimming upstream. It, it means going against the flow. The world always loves those who go along to get along. The disciple, though, must be rebellious. We must rebel against the values and the priorities of this present age. We live in today, yes, but we live for tomorrow, and that means that we live a resurrected life. We have been raised in baptism, but we look forward to the day that we will be raised eternally. And so I end with the question I started with. What will you do tomorrow? Will you live a resurrected life? will today change you going forward. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you, even though we can't be together under one roof. We thank you for the technology that allows us to still feel like that we have some sort of semblance of being together. And we just pray, God, that as we, as we go into the world, that we can that we can affect the world by the way that we live, that others will see Christ living in us, that we can be your church wherever we go, that we can be an ambassador for you wherever we go. God, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. May we live always a resurrected life. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.